You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hey, this is Justin Herbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Today I'll be speaking on our Life of Messiah series. I'll be sharing about King David. So I've been having these weird dreams lately. And uh, part of it has to do with, you know, being, having a teaching team. But uh, I had this dream, I don't know, maybe a month ago, month ago. I dreamt that we were doing this series, The Line of the Messiah, and I got up to speak, and I was just kind of pounding right through it. And as I'm looking out on, to you all, you're giving me these funny looks and kind of looking around, and, and it's then that it dawned on me that it was not my week to, to, to preach. It was Scott's week. <laughs> and so Denise has given me this dirty look, like, how dare you take my husband's, you know, whatever. And, uh, and so... so I didn't know what to do. I was kind of panicky. Like, I was like, mm, do I keep going, you know, and what do I do? And so, so I was like, and now we're going to talk about the line of the Messiah. And here to present today is Scott Schuler. And you all applauded and applauded, and it was great. And I think you were applauding. I wasn't sure if you were applauding because I wasn't speaking and Scott was, or if you were applauding because I did that transi- transition so beautifully. I don't know. I had another one about Steve last night. I mean, the, these are the things we dream about, you know, like, is it my week? You know, everyone, my biggest fear is coming in and like, it's, I'm not prepared. I don't know. It's, well, we've been talking about the line of the Messiah and we've been exploring the different people and the patriarchs. And we looked at Ruth last week, Tamar, Rahab before that, these people who were part of uh, Jesus's story. You know, I was thinking about this. I, I, I was going through my old files and I, I found my family's genealogy. And this is put together by the Hibbert Association, which you may not have known existed. (laughs) And actually, it's interesting because Hibbert is not a very popular name. Hubbard is much more popular, but not Hibbert. And so it was neat to look through this. I've looked through it in the past, but um, in here, it's kind of broken down a couple of ways. And and one way, the first page is the royal line number one. And, And there's some interesting names in here. And then there's royal line number two. And uh, then you get names like Marcus Antonius, uh, Tiberius Claudius Caesar, Marius, King Sumo, uh, Pharamond, Pepin the Short, Charlemagne, Pepin, King of Italy, Robert, Herbert the First, Herbert the Second, Henry the First, Henry the Second. Once you're related to one of them, you're related to all of them. That's kind of how it works in, in Europe. But... Um, it's interesting because I look at this, and I'm not much of a genealogy type of person. There are a lot of people in my family that were. And, and it, you kind of get the sense of, I'm related to these cool people, these people that were important in some ways. I used to go around as a, uh, in high school and maybe college and say, Princess Di was my cousin, which she was. I don't know how distant. I don't know how many people have to die before I assume the throne in England. But, <laughs> but wars have started over such things, so... That's my backup plan. <laughs> well, if there's anyone, and you may in your, own, in your own genealogies have someone that you're related to, someone that's famous or noteworthy or notable of some, of some way. And I think for the, and, and, and genealogy is important. We always want to know where we're coming from. Who came before us? Why are we the way that we are? All of these things that kind of connect and, and make things click for us. And, in, and the Bible is filled with genealogies. We have genealogies throughout the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we're, we're presented with two. And if you have your Bibles, you can kind of put your fingers there this morning because we'll be looking at them in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3. 
I would say if there's anyone that you'd want to be related to, though, it was this one here, David, the king. David is, is interesting on a number of fronts. Number one, he was a good king. He was a godly man. He uh, was a man after God's own heart. We see, you know, according to um, Michelangelo, he is chiseled. He's got abs like you could washboard abs, and he's muscular. And, I mean, that's the guy you want to be related to, right? On the other thing is, if you think about it, David is interesting because what happens in the line of kings is that the, the father is the king, and he passes down the kingship to his son. But that's not the case with David. David's predecessor was Saul, but God rejects Saul. He rejects his line. So Jonathan, Saul's son, does not become king. Instead, it sort of just skips out of the blue, and then we get from the line of Jesse, we get David. The second thing that's interesting about it is that not only is he kind of out of, a king out of nowhere, but he's a king. He's not the oldest son in Jesse's family. Remember, Jesse, Samuel comes to Jesse and says, there's going to be a king from your line. Bring me your sons. And one after the other, Jesse brings his sons and almost forgets about David. And Samuel's like, is there any other sons? Hmm, let me think about this, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. I do have one more. He's kind of out there. You know, it's kind of a long shot, but go for it, you know. So David is, David is this kind of guy who gets passed over even by his own family. The other thing that's interesting about this is that David is one of three kings also, one of three kings that serves in the United Kingdom, not the UK like we think of the UK, but the United Kingdom of Judah and Israel together, and then they, they divide after Solomon. So David is an important guy, an important, important king in history. So it would, make, it would be no surprise that Jesus himself would come from the line of David. Jesus is presented in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3. We're presented with two lines, actually. We're presented with two lines, and you can see the differences. With Matthew, he starts with Abraham. He goes through uh, the line, and he includes some women, which was very unusual to include women in the Jewish genealogy, and I think we've talked about that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And in Luke chapter 3, though, it's different. Because Luke begins with Jesus and works his way backwards and doesn't just stop at Abraham. He goes all the way down to Adam, son of God. What's interesting, though, is that if we look at these lines and we put them next to each other, there is a, a single name that is similar, and that is King David. King David sits on top of both of these lines. He's found in both of these genealogies. So you might ask the question, well, why does he have these two genealogies? What, what's, how do we make sense of this? Well, one thing that we should note is that King David received lots of prophecies about being a part of the mission of the Messiah and the birth of the Messiah. And some of them are just so blatant and beautiful. For example, in 1 Chronicles 17, 11 through 14, we read, When your days are over and are over and you go to be with your ancestors. And this is Nathan talking to David. He's prophesying over him. He says, I will raise up your offspring to secede you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he is the one who will build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. And I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. 
And check out this one in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. When we look at these two lines, the first line in Matthew chapter 1, many believe is, is Joseph's line. This is the royal line. This is where we see the kings come from uh, David. And then the line in Luke, many believe is Mary's line, and this is the bloodline. But here's the thing about these lines. I mean, we could look at them and be like, oh, it's so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And, and for us, it just may seem like uh, just a bunch of names. But there's some significance here. First of all, in, in the royal line is a man named Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiakim or Coniah. It was at his reign that the kingdom uh, was captured. And so Jeconiah is cursed by God. And we read about this curse in Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah prophesies over him and says, Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Okay, so that's a problem, right? The problem is, is that here we have this royal line, and right in the middle of it, right at Jeconiah, it's cursed. So you say, well, how can Jesus become king? How can he have a, be a rightful heir of the throne of David if the line is cursed? How is God going to work this out? You might say, God, wait, before you curse Jeconiah here, let's talk about this. Let's see how this is going to play out. Because if you curse the line right in the middle, you're going to have a serious problem. And this is how, why the virgin birth is so amazing and so beautiful. Because Jesus, through his adopted father, Joseph, he receives all of the rights that his father would have. So Joseph, in a sense, even though Jesus is, um, Jesus is an adopted son, he becomes just as much of a son as anyone, any of uh, uh, Joseph's other sons. So he receives the right to the crown, not through the cursed bloodline, but through adoption. So then how does he stay related to David's royal line? Through blood? Well, that's through Mary. Through Mary, he is a biological son. Jesus is blood-related to King David. He is adopted into the line of kings, receives the right to become a king, and at the same time, he has his bloodline as well is related to David. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing, it's amazing to think about this. And for us, it may not make a lot of sense because for us, it's like, well, just elect some king, right? Just who cares who's related to who? But in a monarch society, especially where it passes from father to son, father to son, this was important. We don't really recognize that in our democratic society where we elect officials, but for a monarchy, this was very significant. Jesus is related to King David. He fulfills that promises, and he fulfills it in a couple of ways, and still maintains the curse to Jeconiah. Now, we can't talk about King David without talking about the beautiful pink elephant in the room, right? Bathsheba, right? It's because of Bathsheba that King David has a son. King David and Bathsheba have the son Solomon. What's interesting is that in Matthew 1, Matthew doesn't even use Bathsheba's name. He says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So here he's used a number of women in the names. He's used 
Mary and Ruth and Tamar and Rahab, but he refuses or at least omits Bathsheba's name and refers to her as Uriah's wife. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? I remember um, when I, I was in college and I went back to my high school uh, for a play that was going on and, and I, I ran into a friend of mine who I'd gone to school with and she came up to me and she said, Justin, I have something to tell you. I have some news. And I said, and I hadn't seen her for, you know, a, a semester at the time and I said, or a year, and I said to her, I said, you're engaged. She's kind of guessing out of the blue and she said, no, but close. And I'm like, you're married? And she said, no, it's what happens after people get married generally. And I was like, you're pregnant. And I was, it was one of those things where you just, you don't know what to say to them. You want to be excited because there's this baby inside of them, this new life, and you want to celebrate that. But at the same time, you know where it came from. You know how it happened, right? Was she engaged in sexual behavior before she was married? And, and, and it's so awkward, isn't it? I'm sure we've all, I'm, I know I'm not the only person that has experienced that awkwardness, right? You just don't know what to say sometimes. And I think if that's you, if you've ever been in that situation where you want to rejoice with someone, but at the same time you, you wonder, you, you, you say, well, am I rejoicing in their sin? Well, how, how, do, I, how do I deal with this? I think Matthew here kind of demonstrates that awkwardness. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Sorry, I'm going to get notifications here. (laughs) Well, let's take a look at this story. Uh Uh-oh. Man, people notifying me. All right, let's try this again. So we're going to take a look at this story. And and, uh, all right, all right, we're going to move through this really quickly here. (laughs) It is is really... (laughs) Thank you for saying that, Denise. It is awkward. You should be. This is, this is why I like coming here. <laughs> All right, we're going through here. You know, I love technology when it works. It is just it is amazing. It does amazing things, but it makes you look like a ridiculous, ridiculous person when it doesn't work. <laughs> if you were right, I would... I, would <laughs> I just don't think you are. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read this. In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, which was Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, 
haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So then David sent to him, said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his, serv- his master's servants and did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now take a look at this. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed, killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So Joab understood what was going on. He's like, he said, look, he's going to be upset. But if, he, but if he is, you just tell him. Uriah is dead, and that'll make him happy. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him him to say. And the messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. How would you like to be that messenger? So when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I hadn't read that story in a while, and I came back and read it, and I'm like, this is awful. This is a lot worse than I remember. I mean, I've lived through some political scandals, and, and, I, and I think all of us have at some point, but I think, honestly, as far as what I know, this one is way worse than anyone that I can think of in my, on the top of my head. I mean, think about it. He... He, he, he has an affair with this woman. He tries to cover it, cover it up. He, he tries to get this guy to kind of defile his morals. He, um, and, and, and Uriah, I mean, bless his heart, he's this guy who says, I, you know, I'm not going to go over there and be at home and, and enjoy myself while my men are fighting in war. I mean, what kind of soldier does that? And then David does all this stuff to get Uriah on the front line. And not only does Uriah die, but a whole bunch of people die with Uriah. It's this awful cover-up. And he and Joab kind of know what's going on, and, and they're kind of conspiring together. And, you know, I thought about this. I thought, there are a lot of people, you think about David kind of hiding this, but there are a lot of people that know what's going on 
There's the servant that gets Bathsheba. There's a servant that comes back to tell David what happened. There's the messenger between him and, and, and um, him and Joab. There are a number of things. And I think to myself, how awful of a place do you have to be to conspire these things? I don't think this stuff happened in a blue, in a vacuum, where David kind of got himself in trouble and thought, okay, I'm going to backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. I mean, this is pretty brazen stuff to do this. And you think, this, I, 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 I kind of changed my, my view from this is a moment of a fall from grace to this is a moment that's born out of something, I think. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know this, is that what, when we look at David, we often look at the situation and we say, it's a blip on the screen. David was a righteous man, a man after God's own heart. Look at the Psalms. He's full of goodness and love and joy and a man who is devoted to the Lord. This incident with Bathsheba, the moment of terrible sin, but it's a blip on the screen. But how many times we look at these guys and, th- and say to ourselves, man, he's done, you know? He's got no hope. What he did was awful, and we kind of, we kind of, we kind of uh, just pass over them and say, and we kind of lay down the judgment and say, there is no hope for this guy. This story, Julie last week talked about Ruth and talked about how it was a story of grace. And I think this is a story of grace, and a a story of grace for all of us. Not just a story of grace, a story of redemption and a story of resurrection. We sometimes look look at the situations in our lives and we say, well, the end justifies the means. Well, you know, okay, what David did was terrible. But if it weren't for him and Bathsheba, we wouldn't have Solomon. We wouldn't have the line of kings that continue and go down to Jesus. We see the good at the end, therefore it sort of justifies the means. That's not how it works in God's kingdom. The end doesn't justify the means. God makes the end right. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, the biblical view of things is resurrection, not a future that is just a consolation for the life we never had but a restoration of the life you always wanted. This means that every horrible thing that ever happened will not only be undone and repaired, but will in some way make the eventual glory and joy even greater. I love that. And I mean, isn't that so true about this story here? The eventual glory that comes out of this is so much greater than the sin and the horrible things that happened. We can look at this not only just for um, Bathsheba and David, but all of the women listed in Jesus' genealogy. I mean, think about them. We took a look at Tamar, a woman who, who um, she, her husband died. She was sexually taken advantage of by her brother-in-law. She, ha- she sleeps with her father-in-law in order to have a baby. There's... Rahab, the prostitute or former prostitute from Jericho. There was Ruth who lost everything, lost her husband, was childless. And then there's Bathsheba, the woman who has an affair with King David. You know what's interesting about these four is that, I mean, first of all, they're women. Women listed in the king of kings genealogy. It was rare enough that women would be in any genealogy, let alone in the Messiah's genealogy. And what's, what, what's so fascinating about this is women were marginalized and overlooked at times, especially women who were not virgins. And none of these women 
who marry, when we read about them, married into the line. None of them are virgins at the time. Something else that was marginalized, women who were, who were not virgins at the time, they, they, they would be passed over, especially those who had done things like Bathsheba and Tamar and Rahab. But furthermore, they're all Gentiles, all of them. What Gentiles is going to be, are going to be listed in a Jewish genealogy? Isn't that something we want to hide? Furthermore, what, geneal- what Ju- Gentiles are going to be listed in the Messiah's genealogy? This is like God saying, look, everything that you look down on in your society, everything that you marginalize, everything that you pass over, everything that you consider worthless and unimportant, I am going to redeem, I am going to resurrect, and I'm going to use it as part of my glory so that the eventual glory that's coming will greatly overshadow everything horrible that has ever happened. And isn't that true with the Messiah? I love what Hosea 2.23 says, I will plant her for myself in the land, and I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. And I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The story that we experience here with David and Bathsheba is a story of redemption and a story of resurrection. But it's also not just a story for people in the past. It's a story for all of us. All of us can look back on our life at some point and find something that we're ashamed of, something we're not proud of, something that makes us say, I'm not worthy, God. You, how could you use me? But the, the gospel message is that no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you consider yourself, what Jesus is able to do with your life is better than you could have ever imagined. Amen? Jesus is able to take any life, any situation that seems like it is just messed up beyond belief. The line of kings, a lot of messed up people in there. And Jesus is able to take that and say, I'm going to make this beautiful and glorious. That train wreck wasn't good, but it will come out for my glory. Let's spend some time in prayer this morning. When we close our eyes together, take a couple of deep breaths. You're welcome to pray right alongside with me this morning as I, as I pray. May these words illuminate your heart. And Father, thank you. Thank you for the life that you offer me. I think back on a time in my life where I feel like I've failed you. And there may be a time that comes to mind. Father, you know this secret in my life. and Maybe I've yet to confess it, but Lord, I confess my sin to you. I confess my weakness to you. But I recognize, Lord, that the story of the gospel is a story where you're writing your glory on my heart. 
And so, God, I give you my heart and my soul, and I welcome you in to the very secrets and darkness, the secrets that I hide from you. And I ask, Lord, that you would redeem my life, that you would buy it back, that you would make it worth so much more. Jesus, I trust you. I trust what you can do through me. I reject what I can do for myself. So God, I give you my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. And I ask, Lord, that you would redeem all of me. Resurrect the death that's in me. That every waking moment every breath that I breathe, every word that I speak might be for your glory, might point people to you, the Messiah and King. Today, I make a choice not to live in the shadow of my sin. Today, I live in the shadow of the cross, redeemed for eternity, resurrected from the dead. Death no more reigns. Sin has no place in my life. Jesus, resurrect me and make me whole. Resurrect me and make me whole. Father God, I pray for each person here and I pray, Lord, that you would Help us to understand the glory that you have for us. Thank you, God, for your marvelous work, your plan of salvation, where you took the most horrible things, the most rejected things, the most sinful things, and brought about your glory to teach us that you can do more than we ever ask or imagine by your power and your love. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.